Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome back to the October edition of the Heredity Podcast. I'm Jeff Mush. This month, we'll take a closer look at inbreeding depression and how it evolves. We'll estimate the number of wolves that gave rise to the domesticated dog and hear from an Italian marine biologist about four-eyed dogs, sort of. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. Don't mate with your sister. Inbreeding has long been known to reduce the fitness of offspring because, as the theory goes, they're more likely to express a set of recessive deleterious alleles. But a recent paper in Biology Letters may completely change our understanding of what inbreeding depression is and how it evolves. Pierre-Olivier Sheptou is an evolutionary ecologist at the CNRS in Montpellier, France, and he's written a news and commentary article on this topic. Here he is. So, inbreeding depression is the fact that inbred progenies have, in general, lower fitness than outbred progeny. This is known since, uh, even before Darwin, because uh, I think Knight in the uh, 18th century uh, has discovered that on, uh, on plants, and it's, it's true in every organism. But it has been explained by uh, the population genetic theory, as the consequence of deleterious mutation arising because there are always mutations and these mutations are often deleterious. But when you are outbred, the mutation can uh, be hidden in heterozygotes so that it is not expressed. But when there is inbred cross, of course, a deleterious mutation will, will uh, be expressed. And then this is why we explain that inbred progeny has, uh, have lower fitness than outbred progeny. This is linked to homozygosity. Okay, so we have this idea of what goes wrong when a population becomes inbred. But a recent paper in Biology Letters seems to have turned our understanding of inbreeding depression on its head. To me, it's a very interesting paper because it shows that epigenetic phenomena, such as methylation of DNA, may change a lot inbreeding depression expression. And this is very new because what I, did, what I said before is that we classically consider that inbreeding depression is linked to deleterious mutation, but this is considered to be uh, inconditional, uh, to be always deleterious, not uh, subject to regulation. And the idea that epigenetic phenomenon can change inbreeding depression magnitude may explain lots of results we have for a long time, but for which we did, we did not have the mechanism. Tell me about the experimental setup then. So the author have created inbred plants by selfing each plant or by outcrossing each plant, so that you have two classes of individuals, inbred and outbred. This is very classical in, in plants. And what the author shows is that first, inbred progenies have not the same level of methylation than outbred. They actually have a higher methylation level. This is the first result, which shows that 
inbred and methylations has something to do. We don't know exactly what, but this is the, the basic. After that, they treated seeds with uh, chemicals to uh, remove methylation, both inbred and outbred. And what they show is that when you remove methylation, you do not have any difference between inbred progeny and outbred progeny. This is totally cancelled, which means that epigenetic phenomena, and in, in this case, methylation, is a major factor affecting the magnitude of inbreeding depression. Wow, so not only does this methylation seem to correlate with inbreeding depression, but it seems to be causal because you can completely wipe the slate clean by demethylating. Yeah, in certain way, it shows that methylation controls the expression of alleles, actually. And this is very interesting because it explains lots of results that uh, we have for more than 20 years now, which is uh, the idea that environment can affect, in the, in the classical theory, you cannot explain that environmental conditions can affect inbreeding depression. But actually, empiricists have shown this many times. So the result uh, published in the uh, biology letter provide a simple mechanism, or actually a mechanism, to explain such results. And also, isn't methylation thought to be a way of silencing genes? I mean, is this a fundamental shift in our understanding of what inbreeding depression actually is? Of course. We know from uh, molecular biology that methylation may cause gene silencing, but I would say that in this case, we just know that disturbing or removing methylation changed the phenotypic expression across the whole genomes, of course, because the, this is the, the phenotypic uh, traits of uh, individuals is caused by the whole genomes. So does this mean that inbreeding depression isn't a fixed thing? Clearly, I think so, yeah. This is, I think, the most important implication of this study is that we classically uh, consider that inbreeding depression is sort of fixed thing, at least for a given mating system. The idea is that inbreeding depression can change with inbreeding regime, if you are a selfing species with a lower inbreeding depression than an outcrosser, this is the classical theory, but the result, the new result here shows that it can be affected by methylation level. Another way to say that is that if you have a gene that changes the methylation level in the individuals, it can change a lot inbreeding depression. So the, the, the selection on a single allele can change all the inbreeding depression. So could this methylation theoretically be selected for? If inbreeding depression is not uh, advantageous, you can imagine that increasing inbreeding depression for a population is a way to avoid inbred cross because you, you make uh, inbred progeny, uh, uh, you cancel many uh, inbred progeny. So that would be a scenario where you expect uh, positive selection on inbreeding depression. Are you not surprised that no one's noticed this methylation before in inbred individuals? There are some results concerning um, Drosophila melanogaster showing that methylation was involved in inbred and outbred uh, status, but uh, I'm not sure that I don't think so clear results uh, exist before this, this, this study. So do we need to rewrite our definitions of inbreeding then? Yeah, but I think what we need in population biology is not necessarily precise mechanisms, but a general model describing how inbreeding depression on the whole genomes can, uh, can be captured by a simple model, including such effects, such epigenetic effects, yes. Pierre-Olivier Sheptou there. 
Now then, there's little argument that domesticated dogs originated from wolves, and most would contend that this happened 10 to 15,000 years ago in Asia. Whilst there's still some disagreement about exactly where in Asia this occurred, Peter Savalainen from the KTH Royal Institute of Technology in Sweden and his colleagues are now busying themselves with asking what they would see as a more interesting question. How many wolves were there in the founder population? When dogs originated, they originated from wolves that were domesticated. And these wolves brought in DNA types into the dog population. So you had a specific set of DNA types in these first dog population. And then when dogs spread, obviously they brought with them these DNA types. However, when they spread across very large distances, it's very unlikely that all of these DNA types also spread. So, so just by chance, you would lose uh, quite a few of them for each step that you go away from the region of origin. So, so you would expect to see like a, a gradient. You would have a center of, of highest genetic diversity and basically a full genetic diversity. And then in sort of concentric circles in the gradient, you would see less, fewer and uh, fewer DNA types the, far, the more far away you get from this original source. Okay, and where did you find this highest diversity? The thing is that, that this kind of real comprehensive analysis has been done only for mitochondrial DNA. And, and for that marker, the answer is really clear. You find it in basically southern China. Right, but I suppose the problem with mitochondrial DNA is that it only gets passed down the maternal lineage. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So, so I mean, I'm not sure it's a problem. I mean, it's one marker and it's passed down by females. But on the other hand, it's hard to see why would that fact give this specific pattern. But in addition, there is also uh, studies of Y-chromosomal DNA. They are not as comprehensive, but fairly comprehensive with samples from basically all uh, across the old world. And they show the same pattern, actually. Okay, but you looked at the MHC complex. First of all, what does that part of the genome do? Uh, these, these are genes that are uh, related to the immune system of, of the organism. And so what makes them good markers then for tracing evolutionary relationships over thousands of years? To start with, the bad thing about them is that there, there is a lot of, of selection on them because they are related to diseases among, uh, among dogs. So they are not a, a neutral marker However, the good thing is that they are under selection for, for heterozygotes. So that will keep a lot of diversity in the population. So for this task that we were looking at in this paper to try and find out the number of founders from the wolf, this is a fairly good uh, marker, actually. Right. So even though these markers may be under... Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Selection, they're under stabilizing selection. Uh, yes, exactly. And so you compared these MHC alleles in European dogs against Asian dogs, right? Exactly. So, so we compared European dogs to dogs from across, uh, across different parts of Asia. And what did you find? Uh, we find a, a high diversity in Asia uh, compared to Europe. But most importantly, we get a tool for calculating the number of founders. And, and what we find then is that there were hundreds or thousands of founders from the wolf. Okay, so roughly, can you explain how you go about deciding the size of the founder population of wolves? Basically, you look at the number of the alleles you find, and the, the mutation rate is not so high. So most of the alleles you find in, in today's dogs were most probably also... Uh, those that were inherited from the wolves at domestication. And then there has, of course, been different uh, population dynamics since this time. But through different uh, simulations, we try to simulate them. The number of, of the alleles that we have found in a certain number of dogs today, how many, uh, how many alleles must there have been to start with in among those wolves that were domesticated to dogs. And what was the answer? So we come up with at least 500 founding wolves, probably even a few more, so, so several hundred or a thousand wolves. And does that surprise you? Uh, yes and no. I mean, when you first think about it, then you think, well, this was a lot of wolves that were domesticated. On the other hand, when you think further, you might say, why not? So the thing is that once they started domesticating wolves, then they have, I mean, then they have sort of learned how to handle these wolves. And when they started, why should they only domesticate 10 or, or 100 wolves? Why not several hundred? And if this also was a culture sort of habit that spread from the center of origin to other populations, related populations, they could also domesticate their wolves and so on. So, so within a, uh, perhaps a fairly large area uh, somewhere in Asia, uh, this was perhaps a, a popular thing to do, to domesticate your wolves for a while. So does this suggest then that rather than spreading the domesticated wolves, these people spread the idea of how to domesticate wolves? Yes, possibly. And, and to my imagination, I must say, I'm, I mean, this is a lot of speculation now from my side, but to my imagination, I think perhaps it was a spread both of dogs and the idea, or, or, or wolves, domesticated wolves, and both a spread of, of the domesticated wolves and the idea of domesticated wolves. And perhaps this was happening within just one or a few human generations, let's say 100 years, but then you have a lot of time, during 100 years, you have a lot of time to to domesticate 500 wolves. It's five wolves a year, sort of. So, so in that sense, this is not a huge scale of wolf domestication, I would say. And how long ago do we roughly assume that this happened? 
I would say around 15,000 years ago, possibly somewhere down to 10. So let's say between 10 and 15,000 years ago, somewhere there. And finally then, what do you think is left to find out about the domestication of dogs? I think there is a lot more to find out. And it's a very interesting time for us in the field now because we have this new, very strong and efficient technology of DNA sequencing. So we can start sequencing nuclear genomes of dogs and wolves and make uh, of, of hundreds of individuals. And based on this, I expect that we can find not only that we can pinpoint where and when dogs originated, and this would then link this domestication to a specific human culture that did this. It also gave us the possibility of looking at the genome and, and, and identify the genes that were affected by this domestication. And then I, I expect that we will learn a lot about which genes were involved in domestication of wolves, probably genes uh, affecting uh, tameness, for example, or digestion. Most probably these wolves that were domesticated, they must have gone from carnivores to omnivores. So, I mean, they can't have been fed with just meat by the humans. So they must have changed their diet quite radically. So there are a lot of things, both related to the human culture and to the uh, sort of genetic evolution of these animals from wolf to dog. So, so I think we will learn a lot in the next uh, 10 or 20 years. That was Peter Savalainen. Now that's almost your lot for this week, but since we're talking about dogs anyway, I thought I'd give Giovanni Strona a call. He's a marine biologist from the University of Milan Bicocca in Italy. This month he wrote a letter to the editor about how his recent trip to the vets with his herding dog Rocco got him thinking about artificial selection. I've got six dogs, so I used to go to the vet quite often. In this particular case, I, I was with my uh, Australian Shepherd, which is uh, named uh, uh, Rocco, and uh, then the vet noticed that uh, he has two spots uh, just uh, over his uh, eyebrows. He, say, he said to me that he is uh, uh, quattrocchi in Italian, which, uh, which means uh, he's four-eyed. And then uh, he told me that uh, he had just managed to, to define the standards of a new breed, uh, which uh, blend the best characteristics from local uh, herding dogs. And he told me that also his, his dogs, which we call them taboo in, in our dialect, um, are, um, are four-eyed. And then he said to me that local breeders think that being four-eyed is an advantage for the herding dog. So why would having four eyes be an advantage for a herding dog? Because these spots make the dog look awake also when, when sleeping. And so he's working uh, also when, uh, when resting in a, uh, in a certain way. And also when the cat stare at the dog, he don't know when, if the dog is actually looking at it or, or not. So the, uh, the cat is, uh, keep more attention, so it is easier for, for the dog to, to control it. And this is, quite, uh, this is not, not su- su- uh, so surprising because... Uh, um, in, in nature it is quite common for animals to have four sides and, and usually these spots have uh, similar functions so to confound a prey or to, to confound a predator and uh, so this, this is, uh, this is the, the role And why would you not say that these false eyes had been artificially selected for? 
Well, my idea is that when a shepherd is, is selecting a dog, he just looks at how the, the dog is behaving with the, the cattle and how the cattle is responsive towards the dog's work. So the mediation is not made by the shepherd, but is, is made by the, by the cattle. This needs some further verification. So in a nutshell then, you'd say that these false eyes on the dogs may be human-induced, but not human-mediated. Yes, I, I cannot prove it, but I know how the uh, local uh, shepherd uh, work in their, in their selection. And uh, um, the, um, I can tell you that uh, the, the way they, they choose a dog is, uh, is, is much more based on, uh, on his uh, behavior than on his um, phenotype. And would you expect then that we'd find more of these examples in artificially selected populations? Well, I, I really did not find out something new or something strange. I just, I think it, it is more a f- philosophical di- distinction. Um, I think also in, in other cases, when the artificial selector is directed toward animals which uh, have uh, relationships with other living beings, there could be uh, some, uh, some sort of mediation which is made by uh, these, uh, these other uh, living beings, and that, that is not uh, under direct control of the, uh, of the breeder. So does your observation not fit into our current understanding of how artificial selection works? Well, if being a good shepherd for, for the dog uh, is somehow mediated by, by the cow, well, this, uh, this makes the, the scenario not a total uh, scenario, uh, um, a scenario of uh, uh, complete uh, artificial selection, but it's something different. And uh, so I, I, I call it uh, uh, quasi-artificial uh, selection. I, I think it passed the, the, the idea. Is it often then that you have these ideas when you're going about your daily life? Well, <laughs> I, I use, uh, I, I've got, um, my, my mind is quite inclined to, 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 to search particular pattern in uh, everything uh, around me. In this particular case, I, I talked a lot with a colleague about, uh, about this because I, I was not sure did this make totally sense. I'm, I'm not saying it is uh, uh, right, but I hope that this will uh, encourage a debate about the, the matter. Maybe it is not totally correct to just consider artificial selection and natural selection the only existence. Maybe there is some, some shade of grey with uh, that, that should be considered. And that's definitely it for this month. Join us next month for another episode of the Heredity Podcast. I'm Jeff Marsh. Thanks for listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 